0: No, no, I haven't seen you in a little... I have you. No, 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 I think it's been a little bit... Huh. Organized glasses. I think it's the I who hasn't been here for a while so that everybody looks new and... It is really incongruous, isn't it, to be rushing for a meditation class. <laughs> you know, you'll get there when you get there. I was thinking about that. I, I'm I'm, staying up in the North County this week because I've been um, house-sitting and dog-sitting for um, one of my daughters while she's away with her family. And uh, so I decided to come over Lucas Valley Road and the back road and... Uh, not my usual Sir Francis Drake, and it took way longer than I thought it would. And as I'm barreling along, I'm thinking. So I heard on the radio as I was barreling along uh, the news, a, a news flash, so I thought I'd, I, it was on my mind when I arrived. They said uh, a new poll shows that 47% of Americans, something like that, 49 maybe, feel guilty when they uh, when they shop or make a decision to travel. They f- they're feeling guilty about having to ha- think, feeling they are obligated to think about whether or not they can just go ahead and do whatever they feel like doing and buying this or going there or whatever it is that they're in the middle of about to consume because people are now aware of Carbon footprint and uh, the need to get plastics out of the out of the world and uh, the need to bring um, your own bags to the supermarket. So I heard that the uh, the headline: forty seven percent of people are feeling guilty when they're about to do something like that. And uh, they, were, they were in the middle of... Thank you so much. They were in the middle of interviewing this researcher and uh, something happened to the phone line, so they had to say, you know, we'll come back, we'll finish this uh, interview later. But I thought to myself, well, what do you think about 47% of Americans feel guilty because now they have knowledge that their actions have impact? Huh? Not enough, but don't you think good? You know that. (laughs) You know, usually you feel bad. People feel guilty that they did something or other. No, I. You know, I I was thinking maybe there's a better word than guilty, like uh, feel um, awareness, or they feel uh, maybe even they feel good when they think uh, I should, uh, here I am already buckled into my car and I forgot my bag, so I'll have to use a paper bag from the store, and they have to go back in the house and get the paper bag and come down. Instead of feeling, or uh, they feel guilty, I think that's good. I think they should that, they replace the guilty with pleas that they're now part of the effort to make things different. It's just how things are worded that's so funny. It's good to feel. there's a. Uh, there are two, um, uh, I guess they're Sanskrit terms. They're Hiri and Otapa. And they mean uh, the translation, they're Dharma terms. And they're translated as meaning moral shame and moral dread. So, dread is a bad word, you know, you don't like to think about them having dread. You know? <laughs> but actually, Maybe we should be having dread about what's going on with the with the planet. So I think maybe it's just in words. When I first heard that a long time ago, I read that about hiri and otapa, moral shame and moral dread, and it said that means it's a dual awareness. I don't remember which is which, which is hiri and which is otapa, but it's a dual awareness that every single thing that you do has an impact. That's one of them. And the other one is that the results of impacts are infinite and spreading forever and ever, and uh, become part of the karma of everything. So I thought. First thing I thought was, can't do anything without it. Ha- you know, can't do anything. But then I thought about the, that. Sometimes that doing nothing also has karmic results. If I go door-to-door in the month before the election and knock on doors and tell people what I think is important, it will have a different impact than if I do nothing, if I stay home. If I elect not to vote because, you know, whatever, I don't like either of the candidates, that's the same as voting. That we're in this ridiculous bind. Well, it's it's the bind of life if you're always doing something, whether or not you're doing anything, you know, that uh, uh, I remember Thomas Merton uh, complaining to his abbot that he felt uneasy about the fact, are you all familiar with the name Thomas Merton? Thomas Merton was probably the most famous Catholic in the 20th century. He was not born Catholic, converted to Catholicism while he was in college in Columbia. He then decided to become a uh, priest and become a monk. And so he was Father Louis, and he was uh, at uh, Gethsemane Monastery, and he was a prolific writer and really, I think, the most revered of Catholic voices in the 20th century, and early in his time at Gethsemane, he—it uh, was the same time, it was the 1960s—and uh, uh, his friends were out marching for civil rights and uh, at the end of the Vietnam War. And um, he told his abbot that he felt badly that he was in a uh, monastery doing nothing, and his friends were out there manning the battlements. And I remember that his abbot said to him back, "You have no idea." what your prayers are doing while you're here to support that effort. And, you know, I also have no idea what his prayers were doing. But I think to myself, well, maybe his prayers had something to do with sustaining his friends who knew that he was praying on behalf of them. Maybe that gave them more um, courage to continue on. Maybe it did something. You know, I'm becoming, uh, I think, I, I hope, I hope, less dogmatic about this is what it means or this is what it doesn't mean. Oh, I had something that I was going to bring you, and in all my moving around, I hope I didn't forget it. If I did, I'll bring it next week. I, uh, in the course of the next last several weeks, I was visiting, um, I was in Los Angeles at um, a Budapest conference, also visiting a friend of mine who is, has just finished with a year of um, chemotherapy and uh, all the other kinds of things that had to be done to really seem to have ended her cancer. So she's now just getting well. And she gave me uh, a page of paper from a pad, you know where you get a printed pad, and it says it's going to be okay, and then it's got all like a hundred reasons why it's going to be okay and uh, i I liked it so well, I took it with me, and I was going to bring it for you because it was such a an example of how the human mind is so busy all the time explaining things and commenting things and Try and uh, not saying, you know, who knows why, saying a reason. She said, so there are reasons, things that people might say to people who have developed breast cancer suddenly. Postmenopausal breast cancer, which I did not know. She told me that her doctor told her, no women are dying these days of postmenopausal breast cancer. Did you know that? that sounded good she said the first day I mean women postmenopausal women are getting breast cancer but they're not as lethal and they are more treatable so that was anyway here's her list of reasons it was meant to be it was an accident it was da 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 it was da 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 it was because you had been thinking about it it's because you hadn't been thinking about it it's going to get better. Who knows if it'll get better? There are all the things that people might say to you, instead of saying, "Too bad you got breast cancer. I hope you get better." You know that the mind is always figuring out why, in an effort probably to make sure that it doesn't happen to anybody else. <laughs> when when I was young, I used to read obituaries, and. uh I'd see how in the the Herald Tribune which we read in my family I'd read read it on the train going to school in the morning and uh, I'd look and someone is 64 someone is 72 I'd say wow they were so old (laughs) it's a long time from now seriously when I was commuting to college had an hour on the train every day long time from now That time went by in like three seconds and now everybody in the obituaries is younger than I am. So it's getting a little creepy. Somebody died yesterday that was extremely old, like 90-something. I've forgotten who it was. I think it was von Ribbentrop's son or something like that. Some very high... Somebody whose father was a very high Nazi um, leader in the Second World War. Anyway, that's what I wanted to tell you about. What I'm thinking about these days is um, not knowing why. That, says that the abbot said to him, you have no idea what your prayers are doing for the people outside. I don't either. But that was a good message for him to hear. It made him feel better, apparently. He stayed in the monastery. And I'm always happy to hear that because there's a way I can say, well, it wasn't exactly that prayers went up to some entity that actually causes civil rights to happen. But who knows? I don't know. You know, it's so interesting to be in a position of saying, I don't know. Anyway, I don't know if all of us have met before. If we have not met before, where are you? Put up your hand. Oh, good. Not so many. If we haven't met before, please stand up. Just for a minute. It's a very easy test. You will definitely pass this test. Definitely. What is your name? Greg Where do you live? Oh, I'm so glad you decided to come today, Greg. Why is that that you came? Because I've been meaning to come for about three months. Okay. Well, you can always come. It's really easy. This is... Uh, uh you know i i really don't like it so much that when you look on the spirit rock website to see you know what's happening here it says drop in classes it's and i don't like that they call it a drop in class it sounds really casual like like the other ones are real classes this is just like like a pop up store you know when they have pop ups and they're not going to be here anymore this is the, you know, this is the oldest established drop-in class along with Monday nights when we started. We had Monday nights and Wednesday mornings. They are the oldest established. So anyway, so, but I like the fact that they're always here, the exception of Christmas Day, which will be a, which will be a Wednesday this year they happen every Wednesday and I like that when I'm here and when I'm not here I know somebody's here and that there are other people here so you can come anytime Greg please do uh, welcome Laurel and uh, I uh, live in San Anselmo and this is my first Wednesday class i <laughs> heard you on Monday um, and I'm here because I finally have more space in my life since I'm not going to work i <laughs> <laughs> I. It,
1: yeah, no, no. I,
0: I, is it a hard transition to not? No, no. no. <laughs> it's been two weeks. I don't know how I had time to go to work. <laughs> I have my my friend Jim Detar, long not of this world, said when he retired. The trouble with life is it cuts into your work. Is that it cuts into your day so much? So, <laughs> thank you for coming. Wow, I'm happy. everything is beautiful. Not so hot out there either. No, it is. Well, not today. Or yesterday even. It was hot. Like a well. Wow. <laughs> All right, well, it's passing, it's passing. I'm not going to meet you with the princess now It feels good to come to me. Oh good. I'm glad, Vivian. Thank you for coming. What's your name? Uh uh Shereem. Shareem. I'm glad. Welcome. grind Would you return to <laughs> I'm the uh, executive director of the National AIDS Memorial whoa wow. my, my son has for the past 10 years done the AIDS ride from San Francisco down to Los Angeles just at this time of year and this year he isn't because he's about to leave for Zambia to do the AIDS ride in Zambia so all over the place I'm very excited about that because I saw little videos of last year's Zambia ride and they're riding on, on sand, but I mean a little bit pounded down sand so it's not through sand dunes but a road and here are all these people riding and there's elephants on it. <laughs> so it's how to go on a safari and ride for eight. I'm very happy about that too. <laughs> in the end of uh, I'll find out he's about going to leave in the end of June I'll know how it went if you're here I'll tell you <laughs> what, what's your first name? John John thank you I am Joe I'm in from Oakland also um, I'm actually recovering from open heart surgery Ooh. and uh, I have a couple weeks left before I return to work so I thought I should tend to my spiritual <laughs> side of things before I my <coughs> grind uh, <laughs> I come here frequently for Kevin Griffin's talks and oh, good. Uh, this is my first time obviously for yours what's your grind <laughs> my grind, I work for a social service agency called PRC or Positive Resource Center which serves people with HIV, mental health and substance abuse wow. so did you have an aortic re- transplant uh, I had a double bypass wow, are you good I am very good do you feel different Are I think less than my heart in terms of, or vice versa, my heart is in better shape than my lungs, so I don't feel the stamina that I feel like I should have. You're probably doing all that rehab stuff that they. I'm starting to, yeah. Yeah. So I have a class this afternoon. Well, may you thoroughly rehab yourself. I'm glad you're here. And we're getting back into the grind and, uh, so just to be here. <laughs> I read a thing that just yesterday I read a quote from uh, Seneca I think I, I don't remember I don't even remember I was looking for something else and then I found it and this might not be the book where I found it but it was a quote I'm I'm pretty sure by Seneca that says find a work that you love and then you'll never work a day in your life which sounded really you know it's like a doublon time you have to think about it a little bit but anyway so there you go thank you Are you a psychotherapist in Brooklyn? And that you just happen to be here? Yeah. That's great. You know, Brooklyn is where I was born, which you probably can hear in my voice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the damnedest thing. When I moved to California 56 years ago, um, I think I was substitute teaching general science. I can't even remember why. But I think that, because I know it happened there, and uh, there was, people did not understand. People didn't understand my my speech. So I made a very determined uh, effort to put all of the R's effort to put all <laughs> all not all all of the R's back into my words. And mostly I'm good at it. And when I, when I am giving a speech to a public audience. Here I'm a little worse because I'm so relaxed. These are my people. I can talk any old way. But (laughs) when I'm somewhere, I really speak well to the point that people come afterwards. Sometimes and they say, what was your first language? (laughs) Because it sounds properly like English is my second language. And then I have a lot of friends in New York. And when I go back and I visit them, in a week or two my entire mouth falls apart and i go right back to the old way of talking so i <laughs> i was born in flatbush and i was born in coney island actually we lived in flatbush and then i moved when i was 5 years old to ocean parkway uh, between avenue x and avenue w where do you live Church Avenue do you ride on the bicycle path yeah Yeah? yes I did too with my father on that very bicycle path so there you go I'm glad to know that it's still there oh having done that now those are the people who have just come everybody else has been here before take one minute to two minutes what do we do two minutes <laughs> uh, it's just because, not just because, when Ace is not here, I remember it. You know that you go know. uh, take two minutes to talk to somebody near you about hello or welcome or how are you or what did you do before or what's new with you or something. could you say is the difference between your mind state right now and two minutes ago if there's any difference at all joy. you have joy in it what else Bright. energy it's a little brighter we wake each other up what else discovery Discovery. thank you Elizabeth <laughs> <laughs> oh all kinds of stuff I saw you and Brahm talking away <laughs> we can spend so much time in this room together and not know who's really there so but what else commonality, commonality. connection, connection. Curiosity. curiosity all first of all thank you very much all perfect reasons for why we should do that not just to wake us up before we do our contemplative 20 or 30 minutes but just for its own sake. We discover we have commonality. We discover we're curious that we want to know more about people. People's lives are so interesting. I think that as well, at at the end of our sitting time, when we have a chance for everybody who wants to, to mention this or that about their family and we discover that our hearts really respond to other people and that that wakes us up, there's something about community that is an, uh, an awakening tool. Thich Nhat Hanh said the next the Buddha is going to be the Sangha. The next Buddha will be the community. There isn't going to be one person who comes. It's going to be the community and the community is going to get bigger and bigger. And the community of people worldwide. I have to think something because otherwise it could be so demoralizing to think it doesn't look like people are pleasant anymore or, or caring or interested or He's measuring something. But, you know, that, that all over the world there are people who are determined to look, at, look hopefully at the world and wake each other up and say, listen, whatever are the problems of the world, maybe not whatever, but it seems like, apart from natural change that happens, the current varieties of things that are painful in the world are all things that have to do with people living on the world. So in a sense, people made all this, not even purposely. The the invention of fossil fuel was an amazing thing, and look what happened from it. But now look what happened from it. And when they started it, I don't think they knew this was going to happen from it. You can't know. But but I take so much, I, whatever uh, optimism I have, Uh, I I take from thinking people did this, so what's going to happen in the future is from people doing other things. And I think it was wonderful that 47% of people say it, it hurts my conscience if I go to the supermarket without a recyclable bag. Or I think about that that's a really wonderful thing about human beings. We have the possibility of feeling bad about something and saying, let's not do that again. I think that's the whole thing. When I talk to people about um, what's the point of practice, and I'm very fond of saying that the whole life is a practice to figure out what works and what brings uh, satisfaction to your oneself personally as well as the satisfaction of knowing that you haven't hurt anybody in the process that what's good for me and good for other people and it it comes from human beings having at least in part having the ability to think you know that didn't work I'll do it this way and I'll feel better do you remember a number of you weren't here obviously because a number of you were here for the first time but you remember some weeks ago when Tony and Cliff were both here who was here? great you remember at the very end and uh, Tony told a story about the men some men that he had been working with with mindfulness meditation at Folsom State Prison and the, the men that he works with have been so damaged by life and the circumstances that they got born into and the results of the troubles that they got into that they're people with very poor impulse control who have done some very terrible things. And one of these men, who had everybody in Folsom has done some very terrible thing, said to Tony after some weeks or months of coming and just. But among other things, sitting quietly for periods of 10 minutes or so and then talking and building up a certain amount of confidence in Tony and interest in him. And one of the people in the group said, you know, uh, it used to be that uh, I was known all over the prison for how tough I am. I'm a big guy. And if I decide I take, you know, I get up, but somebody pisses me off... Excuse me, for, I'm telling Cliff's story now. I just haul off and, and knock him flat. I always did that. I said, you know, recently, since I'm taking this class with you, I said, last week it happened, one of the guards said something really got me. I was just about to haul off and hit him, and I thought to myself, that didn't work so well last time I did it. <laughs> So I didn't do it. And I thought that was the best moment of the whole morning. I thought it's like I personally changed the course of the Mississippi. It's a hard thing to take a mind that's trained to react and react murderously, literally in many cases, and say, you know what? The last, it makes tears in my eyes. Last time that didn't work, the last time I did that. It's amazing. People can change. Look around, and one of the things that I I hear a lot these days, I try not to get involved in, is kind of woeful stories about how everybody is getting, uh, that, that unkindness and bullying is contagious and everybody's doing it. I hope not, because it doesn't work. It doesn't make friends. It doesn't make people happy. So why did I tell you that whole story? I had something in mind. No, here's what I was going to say. That I don't think, I I hear myself telling people these days, here and other places, that I don't think about um, instant enlightenment, like from one minute to the next, that somebody has an experience and poof, From that moment on, their whole nervous system is different and they think things over and they never make an inept choice or say say an inept thing or hurt somebody or hurt themselves. I think that it's time and time and time of discovering, wait a minute, I'm about to respond this way, but another way is probably better. And that we really are slowly dehabituating the mind, this would be a fancy way to say it, Dehabituating the mind from responses that are um, confrontative and contentious and changing them and habituating the mind to responses that are warm or friendly or expansive or um, forgiving, all of the above. when you were talking to each other and you talked to some people that you didn't know at all, one of the things about talking to somebody is that you know a few things about them and they become your friend. Even if they're not a profound friend, you feel friendly about them because they shared something, right? So you have a good feeling about them. Look at who you shared with now. Don't you have a good feeling that you're a friend now, sudden friend? I very much prefer, there's all kinds of meditations and I like to teach all kinds of meditations. I, I, my favorite one with people I know and people I don't know is to teach them how to sit and feel as their breath comes in and out. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. Because I would like to meet my life as a friend. I recently began saying, uh, I think, well, what does one hope to do with their with their meditation practice, with their practice of all kinds of things, meditation, among other things? And I've been saying as a shorthand, and I hope it's not too, um, I don't know, trite or... Maybe I'll stop saying it. If you tell tell me it's too trite, I won't say it. I wanna have a mind like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. (laughs) I do. When everybody I know that I say, Did you see the film? How many people you saw the film? You go out in a good mood, don't you? Because it's so confirming that people can have a mind like like Fred Rogers. Come into my neighborhood, sit down, let's wash our feet together. Let's learn about this together. Let's talk about... In the movie, there's a scene where I think it's a... Someone has been assassinated, Martin Luther King, maybe John, F., uh, John um, Robert Kennedy. But it was clearly something that was in the news for the whole country because he made his next program... A discussion of do you know what assassinate means? A lot of people are saying assassinate. What does it mean? And a very kindly discussion. I can't tell it to you verbatim, but sometimes people get so upset that that's what they do. And they purposely hurt another person, and to to have in mind that the people he's hoping to talk to are children who are four to eight years old. They're learning their attitudes for their life. Who knows what parents they live with or don't or what circumstances they're watching, but that he can present to them consistently an adult who is open-minded and tolerant and above all kind. That that's a possibility for human beings. I think about that. And I think sometimes maybe... This I'm completely making up. <laughs> because we have way more we're, we're, we're taller than people were 100 years ago. We live way longer. We send rockets to the moon and cameras to Mars. and uh, we do uh, surgery, uh, robotic surgery, or uh, ra- radio surgery, um, X-ray surgery on, on babies not even born yet, still in the womb. Can you know, do all kinds of magic things, and we still have not, as a species, taught, it, taught ourselves how to hold in impulse to inflict pain. I can't imagine. I think about there was a movie about a year ago. We have to say it. There was a movie about a year or two ago with Helen Mirren, Eye in the Sky. I think that's what it was called. Was it called, Eye on the Sky? Talking about people whose job it is to go to a missile launch place every single day and given uh, information, intelligence information, about where certain terrorists are, making sure that they get bombed or shot in some place in the world. And they arrive at work and they go to work and they do this... And then they come home at five o'clock and they have dinner with their families or do whatever. I think to myself, this is, I went out, I couldn't actually, I couldn't actually stand it. I went in and out. (laughs) I didn't go alone, so I left my husband, I said, I can't take this, I'm going out. Then I couldn't stand in the lobby because I didn't know what was happening, so I went in for a (laughs) while. Then I went out, then I went in and then I went out. It wasn't a bad idea. You know, it's the same as not watching too much news, having an idea of what's going to put you over the edge. But now I really talked way more than I ever planned to talk. It's because I haven't been here in three weeks. Save up so much. But I do have something I want to say. So we're going to sit for 25 minutes. How about that? And I'd like to say, I'd like you to practice with a particular... That particular mantra, may I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. Whatever moment, it's a moment of sitting here, breath coming in and out. You don't have to start with the mantra the first, second. You could sit there for a while. I always, when I'm sitting, sit down and close my eyes and do nothing. What I most like to do is listen to the room. It's not very noisy in here. Here and there, little bits of sound. Just listening to the silence. As you listen, as I listen, I most often find that my body becomes more apparent to me by emphasizing one particular sense door, the door of hearing. My whole body becomes more apparent to me. I feel where I'm sitting I feel the pressure under my bottom. I feel where my arms are. I feel where my breath is. This curious phenomenon of mammals living in concert with the whole planet, the greenery of the planet. The greenery of the planet breathes in the carbon dioxide that we breathe out and restores it to us, replenished with oxygen, and then our bodies make space for the oxygen-laden air to come into them, and takes out the oxygen and sends back the carbon dioxide to the trees. Every once in a while when I particularly think about the fact that the body does that elegant maneuver of making room for breath and then pushing it out and making room for new breath and pushing it out does that from the time we're born until the time we die and we don't even have to think about it we don't have to stay up all night remembering to breathe one of the reasons I feel sure that most meditation traditions emphasize, at least to begin with, attention to the breath because everyone's breathing all the time. If you want to sit for a little bit and notice breath in and breath out and breath in and breath out, you might want to do that for a little while when you feel quite relaxed and present, maybe you could try what happens if you think about this breath arriving. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? You can do it on each breath, on every other breath, however you like. I feel different when I say may I meet this moment fully and I breathe in and out and wait another breath and then say may I meet it as a friend may I meet it as a friend that fully and friend feel different in my mind probably the same in my body whatever I'm thinking but it's the same breath but may I meet this moment fully May I meet it as a friend. So use these next 20 minutes in as, in as comfortable a way as you can. And for as much of the time as is comfortable for you, use that rubric, May I meet this moment fully, May I meet it as a friend? We always save um, some minutes at the end of sitting quietly to mention into the room whoever we might be thinking about in our lives who is in some particular junction. Maybe uh, um, just received some wonderful news or just received some really not wonderful news or in the middle of coping with some um, difficult situation I wanted to um, talk about something was impactful for me yesterday when John Stewart stood up Peter is gravely ill and his wife back. My dog is dying. Thinking with concern about my younger sister, who is a breast cancer survivor and is taking more tests to see if there's arthritis or if. It is spread genre. two hands, the fears and sorrows of a friend of mine who has relapsed myeloma, my best friend, and at the same time my son who gave up a very high-powered, lucrative, architectural job to design group living and how people are going to live together in the future and make it beautiful. I'm very proud of him because he likes what he's doing and I wasn't sure if it was the right decision. So the joys and sorrows, all the goodness and sadness of our lives, I hold belt in Aikido. At the same time, her former employer and dear friend took her own life for reasons that nobody quite understands. And I'm thinking of a young man, also a friend, who who is finding solace after the death of his wife from cancer by dancing. Almost every night he goes to the Arthur Dance Studio and learns dances. And last night he did a little performance, which he incorporated some footbag moves, which uh, is a, also has been a passion of his. I'm thinking about my daughter and her husband. And her son and her son's wife, all in Sweden, to celebrate my son-in-law's father's 80th birthday. At least, older single mom. Thank you. Um, she's ushering her parents and parents-in-law through end-of-life decisions, and her children who are graduating from college through the beginning of career decisions. And I just wish for her the strength to be positive through all of it. And I've offered her Sylvia's lectures that Seed as a resource for mm-hmm. stress. May everybody that we've mentioned and everybody that we thought about and didn't mention and and all of us be sustained by companioning, the companioning of their family, of their kin. May all beings everywhere be at ease. I'm sure that, I'm sure that you experience as I do as you listen, and people that you don't know or, or, or even who you don't know who they are, they're on the other side of the room, and they say a piece of their story, and I, I, I actually responding to how I felt in my body, I thought that's where the expri- the expressions come from, my heart leaps up or my heart goes out to you, you know this kind. Of, expressions that people say. I'm sure that as you sit there and you listen to people that you know or you don't know, that your heart goes out or well, the heart leaps up. You hear something really wonderful. Someone's about to get married or graduate or has a job and doesn't go home to his family and uh, you know that in the midst of a great deal of the struggles of illness and disappointment. And that you don't have to know the person to feel, oh, picked up by their, by their good news and, and really moved and touched by their difficulty. I feel so um, inspired by that. I think what I feel is, is that is I feel confident about human beings really are genuinely uh, strung with compassion that we're meant to be that way, that any wrong-headedness I have from time to time, look, around, look at how people are treating each other, it's all, it's all falling apart. I don't think it's all falling apart. I think there are lots of terrible grave problems with the world and the people and the planet itself. But I think that people are, the, are, are really incredible. They keep on going. In the spot, in, in, everybody, and they, I, I realize that uh, sometimes someone says something that's a, a wonderful, delightful thing, and then somebody else says something that's actually a sad and upsetting thing. Some, and today, a number of people said, Well, I have X and I have Y. And then we all have X and Y in some way. This and this. And the magical thing is that we can somehow get up in the morning, get dressed, keep going, you know, wash last night's dishes, whatever it is, and keep on going. But we feel for people. And I think we feel more, I do, after I've been sitting quietly for a half hour or been in a quiet and beautiful and cool space, I was seriously thinking yesterday in the middle of that huge heat wave <laughs> that it's hard to be in a cheerful mood when your body <laughs> when your body is so afflicted. <laughs> you have to think I left some I left a book in my car. Is it worth going out to the car or not? <laughs> Can I do that? This is where I want to start, today and the next week and the next week, and in June for three weeks. I want to talk about everything I know. <laughs> now, seriously, I do. I, I, I told some people that I will be gone from Spirit Rock from uh, August through December. I have a sabbatical that I am taking from August through December. I'll be back on the 1st of January with who knows what new insights. But um, And uh, mostly I won't be so far from here. For a part of it, I will be. And I'll be part of it in France and part of it in New York. But uh, during the time that I'm here for the, for the days that I would miss, Donald will, of course, be here. And uh, Heidi and um, Tony will be here for the other days that I'm not here. So um, I, you know them well because they're my my favorite people to have fill in for me. And uh, by the way, if you want, Heidi is starting a great course this summer, not through Spirit Rock. And so I would like to encourage you to think about it's online course. Everything is online these days. Can I give you this and just kind of pass it around so you keep keep one if you want it? Um, but I've been really thinking in the last couple of weeks and months that I've been teaching here and there and other places that the more I teach, on the one hand, the more things become simpler. That really what we're doing... And the millions of Dharma talks—it's so funny. I, I I love it that Dharma Seed exists and that people can get infinite listenings, listenings to myself or anybody else. For the last forty years, we when we Dharma Seed started, we were making, uh, being recorded on those little cassette tapes, and then at some point everything got digitized, digitalized, whatever it is. And now people are streaming. I mean, it's, it's it's mainly wonderful because they're free for everybody all over the place. But I think sometimes of the hundreds, maybe thousands of dharma talks that people can listen to, add whatever. Uh, but and there's only one sentence to say, you know, that what we are trying to do is uh, decondition our mind from its habits of struggle which always create more suffering, to the habit of wise response, which addresses suffering. That, uh, that's really all that's supposed to happen. And I've been thinking about what do I know now that I didn't know or even didn't know that I wanted to know 40 years ago, 47 years ago when I went to my first retreat if someone would have come and said, so you ought to go on this retreat, um, actually it was my husband who said, uh, you ought to go on this retreat, so it's really great, you'll love it. And I, it was in the 70s, and I did go on the retreat, and I did love it. And nothing amazing happened, but that's a whole story extra. Some things did happen, but... I didn't get enlightened or totally changed. But I had tried in the 70s lots of different things. How many people here in the 70s tried lots of different things? There were lots of different things to try. Every weekend you could go to this or that or the other. And I mostly did. And nothing bad happened to me. But I didn't feel like doing it more. And then I went to a two-week mindfulness retreat. And in a way, I never left. And maybe it had to do with my... um, uh the the, uh, the fact that my one of my three teachers was Jack Cornfield, and uh, I really loved him as a teacher and he and i be- he became my teacher and ultimately and here we are forty some years later, and we're very good friends and colleagues and so maybe it would have been a difference if Jack wouldn't surely it would have been a difference, but who knows but I was converted. But had somebody said, but I didn't know why. Really, I like what they said on retreats, and I like being on retreats, and I like being quiet, and I like uh, I like tranquility around me. And uh, I had a busy life. I had a full time career. I had a big family. I wasn't unhappy in my life. I was an anxious person, but it, it, you know, I kind of was taking that for granted. I, you know, not even that my parents were anxious people. I have anxious genes. Some of my grandchildren do, and some of them don't, so it's, I'm, I'm actually more and more sure that a lot more is genetic than we have been giving it credit for in the last hundred years. But anyway, if someone would have said, uh, "Go on this retreat, Sylvia We're try this retreat, try mindfulness. you'll become more kind." I would have said, "You know what? it's not my problem. You know I would you know, I came from nice people. And my parents were mild mannered people. I never, nobody ever raised their voice in my house. Nobody ever hollered. Nobody ever punished anybody. Uh, I had two nice parents and a lovely grandmother who all lived with me. And they all thought I was terrific. So, I mean, it was a very harmonious way to live. So I think they were kind and I was kind. But the truth is, 41 years later, I would say, that the principal thing about me is I'm kinder now than I used to be. That's what happened. I'm kinder to myself when I don't do anything, something as well as I'd hoped to do it. It doesn't mean I let myself, you know, whatever. But I think the main thing is I really have gotten it that everybody is hoeing a hard row And even that sometimes he can see it and sometimes he can't see it. But this business of life is a hard road to hoe for everybody. We listen to everything that's going on from the people who spoke out loud today. I was talking to a friend on the phone the other day. And uh, a friend of mine who started in our practice as long ago as I did. And we were laughing at ourselves about what we thought we were getting into at that time. And how proud we were about going off on retreat! It was a new thing in the seventies—go off on a two-week retreat. And I remember telling certain friends. I remember telling an old boyfriend who was in town. I was trying to impress him, you know, that, about this new business of going on a retreat for twenty-four for fourteen days, not talking to anybody, not even having eye contact, and having only two meals a day. This over here is, you know, just. Uh, that like the, my friends say, upper the this is the upper middle path, <laughs> not the, not the middle path. It's the upper middle path. Back in the day, we had breakfast at seven, and lunch at eleven thirty or noon, and tea at five o'clock. Nothing, nothing, because that's what monks did in Thailand. And on a very special day, there might be a bowl of apples. You could get an apple at four o'clock. So that was very... And we went to sleep at nine, and we got up at five, and sat and walked and sat and walked and didn't read and didn't talk. And we thought uh, thought that was hard. We were really proud. So we were laughing about how heroic and uh, valorous we felt felt that we had taken on that. And... uh, We were laughing at how courageous we thought we were. uh, Now we look at each other. We say, "Going on retreat is a piece of cake. It's life that's so difficult. (laughs) It's really true. Going on retreat is a piece of cake. I mean, got a little. We have to work around the problem. Of course, is not the food, or the lack of it, or the comfort, or the lack of it." This is really the upper middle path uh, they went on retreats in the 70s there's 35 people in two outhouses <laughs> that was difficult and we slept in uh, um um quonset huts somehow they were inexpensive to build in Hawaii and you would get um uh, Hawaiian you know rainstorms on a Tin roof Quonset hut sounds like rocks falling on. And we slept in triple decker beds in Quonset huts in Hawaii with rainstorms and two toilets for 35 people. That was a little hard. This is a piece of cake. Uh, but really, it's the life that's hard. It's not the retreat that's hard. And what's hard is really uh, what. I want to start that sentence again because what I've been thinking about and thinking about and thinking about is for a long time I thought the point of going on retreat was to meditate and have some really profound insights into the nature of, uh, nature of how life is and the profound insights that we were meant to see and do get to see and so does everybody else. Whether it's more or less profound, if you realize it in the middle of a slightly more abstemious lifestyle, or whether you vi- you discover it in the middle of life, I'm not sure. I used to think that an, um, we were we were meditating in order to have very profound understandings about the fact that everything is fleeting, nothing lasts, you know that. A moment starts, and it's gone. You sit down to meditate. The first moment, you say, wow, lovely, it's quiet, fantastic. My mind is good, in and out. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. What were those words? What was I supposed to say? I don't know about that idea. I know another. No, the last time I heard, just count ten breaths. What is about this friend's business? Maybe I didn't hear right. What should I do? Should I do that on every other breath or every first breath? What should I do? Wait a minute. Let's not do it. Let's just do counting breaths. That's what I know. We 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 flurry up our minds any chance we get and confuse them. What would we see if we weren't confused? I love to ask people. I love to remind them that. of the story of the Buddha meeting a wanderer along the path as he walked through India and having this wanderer accost him and say, you're the Buddha, yes. Are you a god? No, I'm not. Are you an ordinary man then? No, I'm not. What are you then? I'm awake. That's a great story. I tell it all over the place. And then I say, it's lacking one more line. The wayfarer could have asked, now that you're awake, what do you know that you didn't know before you woke up? And if he had asked, you know, this is me, 2,500 years later, and I'll com- complete other culture in another language, but let's assume it had something to do with the stories. Suppose I know that everything passes, that nothing nothing lasts Uh, how did it come up the other day Uh, oh I was telling somebody that um, you may know it actually that for because those of you who know me some for some years maybe the last 10 years I've been trying to go see performances of um, the Ring of the Nibelung the Wagner for operas whenever I could. So they happened in New York. They happened in San Francisco. We were in New York uh, uh, this year. They were in San Francisco the year before. They were in Chicago another year, in Seattle another year, and Amsterdam and Berlin. And I had the good fortune to have the means and the way to get to see them all those times. And I loved them. And uh, this, they become more interesting, I thought, each time. And I went uh, recently to uh, New York with a good friend with whom I've enjoyed this. And we had a good time in New York, and we saw the ring. And I realized when I was finished, I don't need to do that anymore. All of a sudden, it was a good ring. It was interesting. It was with a friend that I love. So it just I used it up. I mean, it was even good. I thought, you know, all of a sudden, there is, there's six hours long. And what happened in all those years is I got old. I can't sit six hours without my back starting hurt. <laughs> the perfectly lovely, perfectly wonderful production. You have really nice seats. Everything was good. Except not me. I wasn't good enough to do that. And to, and what is wrong about this? Why is that feeling I need more not arising? Because it doesn't work anymore. So that's even a, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, a banal example of nothing lasts. Even what's lovely doesn't last. But, and that is, it's, it's nothing big to get over. But, um, People get sick, people die, people have accidents. Tragedies happen in people's lives all the time. Every time I pass on the highway, somebody who uh, has been in an accident and the uh, first responders are there and have lights, you realize somebody left home this morning with no idea that they weren't going to come home or that they were going to be different when they came home. You don't know that nothing lasts the pleasure of the moment. (laughs) For a long time I had uh, a a, a cartoon from the New Yorker on a um, bulletin board in my kitchen with someone walking along in the street and he's reading his uh, uh, medical record, you know, cholesterol, great, blood pressure, great, this great, that great, and there's an office safe that's fallen out of a window <laughs> that's falling towards him. And you know, everybody laughs. It's, it's like 30 years ago that. But it's like that. The phone rings. And you don't know when, in, my, in my lifetime the phone rang. And uh, my son said, uh, Stan's crashed his plane. And uh, he's, he's died. Remember, there was a a, a store in San Rafael, if you lived here long, called Stan's for Sports. Remember Stands for Sports? Stan was a friend of my son, and a lovely man, and Michael flew with him all kinds of places in his private plane. And one day, the plane crashed, and things don't last. And all around us are things happening all the time. That's without even malfeasance. I mean, nobody meant for something to go wrong. When Tony and Cliff were here, um, I, figured, I think I had asked Tony to bring his rendition of the Four Noble Truths. And I think that what I've come to understand, one of the things, like if I were underlining this, I probably did. One of the things that I would underline, and what have I learned in the last 40 years and taught all these kind, all these lectures about this or that or the five hindrances or the five spiritual faculties or the ten paramis. I've really learned that the four noble truths matter. They are a very good piece of thinking. I don't think that they are Buddhist thinking, they're thinking thinking. You can say that in any kind of a language, that life comes with pain and difficulty. It does. Not not, Not meaning every minute is pain, It comes with pain and difficulty. Uh, May you live happily ever after. (laughs) When when you think of the end of fairy tales, they all come out and they lived happily ever after. I remember even thinking about that when I was a young woman, about, you know, they got married and they lived happily ever after. And I thought to myself, where is the fairy tale that said? And then she discovered that she had... uh, uh, um uh, a uh, premenstrual tension that end, that gave her headaches that caused her to be more difficult to live with would cause her to make fights with her partner every month. who knows you know it doesn't say you know then this happened and this happened and then this happened and then um I read such a sweet line. have you read the book um where the Crawdads sing? How many people read it? How many people fell over it was so great, wasn't it? It was great, wasn't it? So in the very end... Don't tell. Don't tell. Don't tell. <laughs> not Not going to tell. Something doesn't happen that they wanted to have happen, and they felt bad about it, but other things <laughs> happen. But that's life. Something didn't happen that they wanted to have happen, and they did. it didn't happen. So that's what I thought. I I had this conversation about going on a retreat as a piece of cake. Having a life is not a piece of cake. It's that this and that and that and this. And I I wanted to... um, (laughs) um, When we we finish saying to each other, uh, it's the life that's the problem, that's the same story as what the Buddha said. He did not say... Uh, going on retreat is a problem or not a problem. He, say, he looked around and he said being in a life is a problem because everyone is going to die. Everyone is going to get old. Everyone is going to get sick. Everybody is going to die. Everyone is going to get separated from whatever they hold dear or the people that are dear are going to lose them. That's the way it is. Nothing really mm-hmm. exists except the karma of this moment. This moment and what we do in it is alive and real. Everything else is a memory. It's a squiggle on a neuron. And I, I have a number of friends that are starting to lose their neurons, and certainly my friend's parents, if they're around, have lost a lot of memories. What happened to those events if the memories are gone and they can't remember it? There's nobody who remembers it. I'm the oldest person in my extended family. Uh, that I know of that's still left. My parents are long gone, my aunts and uncles. And so I look at pictures of people in family albums and I don't know who they are. And I have nobody to ask. And that's a very strange kind of a feeling. Because if I'm going through an album and I think, well, what can I throw out? I should say this family album, here is somebody at a birthday party. But I don't know who they are. And my children... I'm certainly not going to know who they are, so what to do with them? Does it matter if I just look at them now? So, what I really was thinking about after this that that business of what what are we really doing here what 's the truth? I, I think I already said it. I want to have a mind like Mr. Rogers. I want really to address the 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 things in my mind that I still contest. Really, by not clinging to fixed views, those of you who have been here for a while will know that I'm very partial to the Metta Sutta, and maybe I'll bring copies for everybody next week because there's a line in it which says, "This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace," talking about how to have a peaceful mind in the middle of a life where everything happens. It doesn't. Somebody asked a really good question. Uh, in some magazine that I read, the Buddhist magazine that I read this week said, "You know I feel guilty having a good time because there 's so many people in such extreme, terrible these days if i 'm somewhere if i 'm at a symphony and i 'm really enjoying it, and then I think about what 's going on in the world, uh, I think to myself that that's such a that 's always true." It's worse in the world now, maybe, than it's ever been. Maybe, maybe the world is hotter. You know, I felt so good this morning to hear that in 1904, it was the same hot in San Francisco as it was yesterday. I thought, aha. So my thought yesterday about this is the beginning of the end, maybe it's the continuation of the beginning of the end, but it's 100 years since 1904. How do I know? Most of my fears are conjectures. This moment is okay. It's okay. How to really live this moment. So it's the only thing that's real. And so going back to what are we supposed to learn on retreat? Learn that everything passes. That when we insist that things be one way and they're another way, there is suffering. And that everything has to do, everything matters. There should, someone should write a book called Everything Matters. Everything Matters. Because what happens today has to do with everything that everyone ever did and how the world was that it did it to. And what they decide to do today is going to make tomorrow. And the people that I think are villains are people who are living their lives the way they are because of the things that have happened to them. And I've learned that in so many different ways. And then I forget it, and somebody becomes, mm, and I think about them. It well, was some opinion that I had that I was sure about, and then I don't even remember right this minute, but something I thought about yesterday, I thought, ah. Oh. <laughs> it was an opinion that I had always had. I am right about that, and everybody is wrong about that. And yesterday, all of a sudden, I can't remember what it was. I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it's, maybe it's not. And I, I I felt very relaxed about that. The more things that I could say, well, I don't know. But dukkha nishyana is the suffering that happens because we can't uh, accommodate ourselves to changing circumstances. Things are always changing circumstances. There's nothing but changing circumstances, and changing changing circumstances created this moment and will continue to create moments so that. Nothing exists, but everything matters, which is a really weird thing to hear myself say, but I think it's true. Nothing exists. It's all in motion. So I wanted to tell this particular lesson that I had last year. Ajahn Amara, Ajahn Analyo, was teaching here for a day. It was a big teacher's conference, and... um, Everybody from teachers who had been teaching for 20 or 30 or 40 years and new teachers in training were here. And um, a man whose name is Anaglio, who's a monk from Germany, lives in Germany, whose weekday, um, so he's in robes, his weekday practice is three days a week or four days a week. He does retreat practice, gets up very early in the morning, sits, walks, walks, Meditating all day long. The other three days, he's an incredible scholar, and he's written a number of books. Some of them might be in the bookstore. Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness, is his discourse on Anaglio's discourse on mindfulness. And people who use them as practice guides find them very useful. Anyway, Anaglio was here, and uh, he was going to talk about something And he said, well, before I talk about that, I'd like to invite you all to sit and ease just for a few minutes and go inside and notice if there are any afflictive energies in your mind. So an afflictive energy would be, you tell me, what's an afflictive energy? Worry. Worry. Hatred. Hatred. Jealousy. Jealousy. Judgment, anger, greed. Envy. Yes. That's what we know, a lot of afflictive. And they are, they are. They're <laughs> afflictive. It's amazing to me. Not an amazing, but an afflictive thing arises, especially things like um, resentment. Like that's certainly, a, you know, why did they get that, not me? Or, uh, why did they say that? Uh, and the, I remember the, the the instance in which the Buddha says, if we pick up a hot coal, we drop it right away. You know, you do know, carry it around with you and continue to burn yourself. And pick up a, an afflictive mind state like hmm, uh, indignation. That's the really. <laughs> I'm doing very well, by the way, on my my decision to not watch cable news. You know, after a while, after a while, you unaddict yourself seriously, much better, and I feel better about it. And the final thing was I noticed that in whatever room I I am that I hear a television in another room and some channel that's purported to be news, the tone is indignation. You know, like... And it's, like, irritating. (laughs) And you become indignant because, like, it's catching. Like, how dare anybody say that or do that? So I feel better, by the way. That's just a progress report. I could have a slip, but I'm trying not to. Um, But here's Analyo who said, notice if there's any afflictive energies in your mind and call up one of the Brahma Viharas and sweep it away. Use it to sweep away all the afflictive energies. He said that in one sentence. And I thought that's probably the whole thing you could teach. I wrote it out. I I I remember that he had said, actually of uh, the development, we were developing mindfulness. He said, um, on the one hand, balancing uh, the Brahma Viharas and the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas, which means goodwill and um, um, compassion and joy and uh, equanimity. We're developing those Brahma Viharas which are the antidotes to... Fear and greed and anger and confusion and jealous and jealousy and envy and worry I said well that 's a nice way to say it in order if you have the antidotes here, I just love the way he said it. Notice if there's any like if you, <laughs> it sounded to me in the same tone of voice of look in the room and see if the uh, people sweeping didn't sweep out all the uh, leftover confetti from last night or something, and take a broom and sweep it out. Look in the mind and see if there's any afflictive energy there. And then if there is, just take a Brahma Vihara and sweep it out. And then, okay, here we are. And now he'll teach, and he went on. And I thought to myself, that's easier said than done. You know, that's really... Uh, By the way, that actually is a little in-joke. I can remember I wrote a book called It's Easier Than You Think, The Buddhist Way to Happiness. I promise you I did not write that title. Um, I wrote every other word in that book myself, and I'm very proud of it. It's a good book. The first book I wrote, and I did not know that you had negotiating room with your publishers. They said we want to make... I, I wanted to call it something else. I wanted to call it I Changed My Mind. And they said, you can't do that. Because that's like, who's on first? And they say, what's the name of your book? I changed my mind. Yes, yeah, so what did you change it to? <laughs> so what is it? It's too ambiguous. And I also wanted to call it Albuquerque Mind. Because in Albuquerque, every time you close your eyes and open it, it's a different weather. So I wanted to say the mind is like the weather in Albuquerque. It just changes every two seconds. Uh, they said, no, also, too subtle. It's easier than you think is good. Be- and happiness, the, the Buddhist path to happiness, because there are certain, were five words that people like. Easy, fast, free, happiness, something, I don't remember, heart, something like that. So the book became a very successful book, so maybe they were right. But I feel always like I should say the name of the book is It's Easier Than You Think. To understand what happens, that 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 it is the habits of our very own mind that continue to make us uh, that continue to cause suffering to ourselves and other people, and it's harder than you can imagine actually to change those habits. It's like changing the course of the Mississippi, but if you keep on doing it, it changes the habits. I had way more to say than that. But anyway, well continue where I was last week. A very interesting thing happened. I was writing this all yesterday and um oh a friend of mine called and I was on and we talked on the phone and she was telling about um how something had happened to her in in her traveling. The rental car wasn't that she picked up was not as as clean as one would have hoped she said it, could, it smelled of marijuana and cigar smoke and it was so bad that uh, I was driving north so I had to, to call the rental company and stop in Santa Rosa and trade it in to get another one to continue up to where I was to Sacramento and they weren't pleasant to me in the rental car and she said and then the whole day it just bugged me so much why do things bug us so, it was, so the little conversation about why do things bug? I said, I don't know why they bug. There have been things that have bugged me that I, you ever have something and you say, I can't get this out of my mind. It's such a stupid thing to have clogging up my mind. If I wasn't bugged by this, I'd be a happy person, but somehow I'm bugged. <laughs> and so, I was, I, I mean, this sounds insignificant, but it's not. Because I thought that I, I was consoling her, I said, uh, don't you think it's you know really silly of me to do that? I said no, no. I get bugged by things, and you say to yourself, "Let's not do this." So I'm with you. And then two seconds later, it's back again. Usually has some indignant, "I was right, they were wrong." That for some reason it's playing. I said, you know, I think among all... Uh, if, uh, if nothing else, how do I know whether it's important enough to allow yourself to be bugged by it or it's not important, in which case you shouldn't be bugged by it. Bugged is bugged. and very, it, It's very uncomfortable. So I said, at, at the very least, it's the cause for compassion arising. Everybody gets bugged by stuff. And it's even worse because you you can say... I knew I'd be better if I could put this down, but I can't put it down. It's really a sign that it's afflictive. So it was a, you know, maybe I have to help her feel better, I don't know. But I thought, I was thinking about it, I hung up the phone, and it says here, got a little asterisk asterisk after this happened, because uh, I was in a good mood, because I was talking to a friend, and we were talking about things that had mutually bugged her, me, whatever. And the phone rang right away. And without looking at the, you know, the anyway, I answered the phone. And it was a phone call telling me about how fortunate I was to have been chosen to have a free vacation <laughs> in, uh, in, in the Caribbean because I had been picked, my name, da, da, da. And uh, I just listened to it for a while because I was, I was interested in the fact that I didn't feel bugged. You know, you're, normally you answer the phone, and then you think, oh, why did I answer the phone? <laughs> then you think about whether I'm going to say something nasty to the person or just hang up or whatever. And I thought, this is so odd. I'm not the least bit bugged. <laughs> and I thought to myself, so really what, the whole reason I tell you that long story is that at the moment I thought to myself, bugged is in the eye of the beholder, you know, that like everything it turns out to be in the mind of the beholder. And at that moment, my mind was in a cheerful and spacious way. I was talking to a friend. We were laughing about each other. And it really... doesn't make any sense to make comparisons about your bug is more important than my bug. (laughs) Bug this bug. To be able to listen with the phone... And then say no thanks and then hang up. And not feel indignant, messed up my day, even my cell phone, people know my cell phone. Bugged is extra. And you know, really what I'm trying to do is learn to negotiate a life in which I can live I had a long string of words here yesterday. I want to live a life that is passionate, engaged, and generous and helpful. Period, as for as long as I live. That's what I want to do. And what I want to talk about next week and the, w- and the week after, and then for three weeks in June, is what. No, July, July, three weeks in July, is how in the, past, in, the in the course of the last 40 years, I have gone from thinking, maybe, thinking, that the main thing is to meditate. That's where the action happens, in deep states, which I've done and enjoyed and learned a lot from. That's the main place. Then I thought, well, maybe the main place, because the Buddha taught Sila Samadhi Panya, ethicality, uh, mind training, and the cultivation of wisdom. So I'm thinking about the mind training. But how about ethicality? And I got so interested in that that 20 years ago I wrote a book called um, (laughs) uh, Pay Attention for Goodness' Sake, talking about uh, really starting with the cultivation of virtues, not meditation as the entrance into understanding, but cultivating virtues as your spiritual path. Ethical, moral behavior, scrupulosity... Scrupulosity is like uh, like uh, over, over. Scrupulous. Impeccability is what I mean, not scrupulosity. Impeccability in how I behave based on keeping my eyes open and looking how people are suffering in life just because they're alive. And if I realize that, then morality arises in me. It, I wouldn't want to make things worse. Everybody is suffering. Everybody is suffering. So why would I... I felt so bad for all, I thought about all the people in the world who are obligated or feel they're obligated to make a living by swindling people with free vacations. Or or uh, I got a phone call two days ago that said this is a Social Security Association. Your Social Security number has been invalidated. Press one if you want to find out how and... Get yourself revalidated, and I think how about all the old people who are going to press one? You know that so sad. And I think about the people who are obligated to do an immoral thing as, as as a way of supporting themselves. But if I can think about that and feel compassion for the people that at not only the people who are duped, but the people who are duping, how good is that for a life to know that you are swindling other people? So I really spent a lot of time in the last 20 years saying, really, it's an ethicality and morality and the development of the virtues. But certainly, meditation does not count. It does count. And here I am, after all of that, and I'm thinking what really matters in addition to the cultivation of that and the cultivation of a trained mind, what really matters is... um, the really the deepening of wisdom, which is the wisdom that everybody is really suffering. Everybody is really suffering. And nobody is responsible. Everybody is responsible. And nobody, nobody is going to make it better. Everybody is going to make it better if they will. And so I don't know that that means I was barking up the wrong tree. I think they're all good trees to bark up. And that's just how it worked for me. But I want to talk more about all those three trees of barking. And (laughs) isn't that funny? Three trees of barking. Here's a book called um, Everyday Mindfulness. Uh, It's published by Lion's Roar. It's special editions, Lion's Roar. Um, I don't think we have it in the bookstore here. We may carry Lion's Roar. But they might have it in Woodland Market or... uh, or Molly Stone, where they have upscale magazines, because this is a really good issue. I looked at it, and I looked all through it, and I thought, first of all, this is everyday mindfulness, which is my Torah, so to speak, but it also has very good articles in it, and I thought this would be a great contemporary primer for people who wanted to have an you know, introduction to mindfulness course in... Um, in high school or in junior college or in midlife or whatever. But it's a very good compendium that they've put together here. It says, Brighten Your Day, Everyday Mindfulness. So I uh, recommend that to you. May all beings be peaceful and happy and it's a pleasure to be back. Come to the end of suffering and I'll be back next week. Yeah. absolute joy please leave your chairs. Please leave your chairs.